Hello everybody uh, and Kia Ora. In today's webinar, we will present uh, the updates made to part two and three of the guide to project delivery. Uh, more than 200 people are registered for today's session. Thank you for your interest uh, and welcome to you all. My name is Ekaterina, I'm a communications officer at Austroads and I will be moderating today's session together with uh, Colin McKay, who will moderate the Q&A at the end uh, of the webinar. First of all, I would like to acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting today. I pay my respect to all this past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the Treaty of Waitani and Maori as the original people of New Zealand. A little bit about Austroads. Uh, we are the collective of Australasian transport and traffic agencies, and our focus is to support our member organizations to deliver an improved road transport network. This project uh, was delivered under the Transport Infrastructure Program, which is managed by Ross Guppy. A bit of housekeeping. Uh, our presenters will speak for about 40 minutes and then we will have a Q&A session for 15 minutes. Uh, the report and the slides for today can be downloaded from the handout section of your sidebar, which you will find on the right-hand side um, of your screen. To send us your questions for the Q&A, please use the question icon on your sidebar. Um, if your question relates to any particular slide, include the number of that slide in your message to help us answer your question as best as we can. Also, let us know if you are experiencing any technical problems, uh, but a quick tip, if you lose sound or your picture freezes, the issue is most likely with your internet connection. So uh, closing your browser and rejoining the session uh, by your email registration link usually helps. This session is being recorded and we will let you know when the recording is available on our website. Uh, and if you listen to podcasts, you can also find Austroads in your podcast app. So we have three presenters today, uh, Colin McKay, Nigel Powers and uh, Karen Kogo. We will first hear from Colin McKay. Colin works for the Waka Katahi uh, New Zealand Transport Agency and he has over 40 years experience in road construction and maintenance. He currently leads the infrastructure development team and is on a number of boards and steering groups uh, working on national business. Our second presenter is Nigel Powers. Uh, Nigel is the national leader asset performance uh, at the Australian Road Research Board. Um, he currently leads the delivery of um, asset performance services including structures management, asset management, asset modeling, assurance systems, uh, and safe asset performance. Prior to ARB, uh, Nigel worked on major road projects for the Department of Transport Victoria. And our third presenter is Karen Kogo. Karen is a principal professional leader at the Australian Road Research Board. Um, she has over 25 years experience uh, and has designed and managed a wide range of road infrastructure projects under many um, road safety and capital works programs. So welcome to all our presenters and I will now hand over to Colin. Thank you, Katerina, and good afternoon, everyone, uh, wherever you are out there in the wide world. Good to have so many people registered for this this afternoon. Sorry, just get to the next slide. Right, so 
some of you will have heard of the Project Delivery Task Force, if you are in Australia, I'm sure. Um, often with these projects, we have working groups to assist the consultant as we go through the project. In the case of this project, relatively small, uh, we, the Project Delivery Task Force, um, became the working group. We didn't have a separate working group. And you can see your jurisdictional representatives if you're in Australia um, on, that, on that plan there, that slide. So I have been the Austroads project manager for this project, and we procured Arv as the lead consultants, and you've already been introduced to Nigel and Karen as the presenters today, but of course they've had others in their team assisting. So the guide to project delivery, for those of you that have um, downloaded it, seen it, you'll know it comprises five parts. Um, Part five was developed sometime after the first four parts. Um, so it came later as we agreed there was a need for it. And of course, we've also got the, um, the procurement manual there. The procurement, um, it's building and construction procurement guide, principles and options, which you see tagged to the bottom right of the, um, of the screen there. We do not in this guide to project delivery attempt to talk about the details of procurement. It's all, all pretty high level and we cross-refer to this um, the building and construction procurement guide where there's a whole lot of additional information. Um, so part two provides guidance to practitioners on project delivery um, practices. Lots of several concepts relating to planning and control and, and delivery of projects. ARB has provided assistance and updates to these guides um, and has a good understanding of the context. Um, originally published in 2007, the first four parts of the guide were revised in 2014 and then a minor amendment in 2019. Uh, we've seen recently when we decided to fund this project that there was an opportunity to revise part two in particular to include some latest, some new techniques, best practice that we're seeing in parts of Australia and New Zealand and around the world. And that's really the purpose of the project that we've embarked upon. So predominantly the focus was on updating um, part two, planning and control. And we, in doing so, enhanced guidance on project planning and project controls. Um, with uh, a focus on improving quality outputs and value for money for project delivery. Um, parts three and four, or sorry, chapters three and four of part three, which is tendering and contract award, we felt were best suited as um, under project control. So we've taken this opportunity to move them into part two. Not a lot of change to the contents or the text, but we have put it into part two as a more rational place for it. So here we see the process, fairly typical process that we go through on a, an Austroads project. Um, the initial literature review looked at international, national and local project management practices on a range of large and small projects to see what new techniques we could adopt. Uh, stakeholder consultation was targeted to get a good representation across the spectrum. So we had clients and consultants or designers and contractors on board and some academics at the university. Um, and we got some very good feedback through that consultation. 
We then assessed the key issues that had been identified during the literature review and the consultation. And we started developing the first draft of the updates to the guides. This was then reviewed by the Project Delivery Task Force in the, in the absence of a separate working group. Um, and direction was given to ARB on how to move forward. The final updates to the guides were, have recently been approved, I think since Christmas, by the Austroads Board and are now published. And as with all Austroads projects, uh, the final part of any project is to do a webinar, which is what we're doing today. And this is really to um, implement, promote and support the guide and the amendments we've made to it. Just a few stats quickly on uh, the use that's being made of these guides. Um, You'll see just, we've only looked at the database since um, since the January update to um, to today. today. 3,700 downloads is quite impressive, of which 777 have been part two and 579 have been part three. And you can see the Australian jurisdictions there um, that have um, resulted in most of the downloads. It's worth adding that in addition to these stats, um, if you interrogate the downloads over the years, there's been many, many countries. I think the last I heard about 27 countries, um, various practitioners in those countries that have downloaded parts of the guide. So it's very encouraging to us as a task force um, who developed this guide to see the level of international interest in it. So that is a brief introduction um, to the project. Um, I'll now hand over to Nigel and he'll take us through the literature review and the stakeholder consultation. Nigel. Thank you very much Colin for that uh, and also thank you Ekaterina for the, the um, introduction as well. So yeah my name's Nigel Powers, I'm the National Leader of Asset Performance at uh, ARRB uh, for this project, I was the quality manager and worked with Karen, um, Colin, and also the task force to ensure that we met the quality requirements um, and Austroids expectations. So over the next few slides, I'm going to cover the early stages of the project, um, talk a little bit about the, the literature review and also the stakeholder consultation. Uh, I'll touch on some of the outcomes and, and what uh, resulted in the review of the guides, and then I'll hand over to Karen, who will go through the changes that were made. So as part of the project, uh, and Colin noted it before, uh, we conducted a literature review and we searched through the internet, ARBS, International Network of Libraries, um, to look at Australasian and international literature. Um, we also had some input from Colin and the task force on the areas that we th they thought we should uh, have a bit of a look into as well. Uh, if you look across Australia and New Zealand, you'll see the methodologies that are used largely do come from international research and, and primarily from the UK. So um, that actually helped to provide us a bit of direction in our, in our search. Now, the literature review focused on road-based infrastructure projects for, for obvious reasons. Uh, and it was determined that some of the key areas that we should look further into were Lean construction, uh, as it relates to the planning and controlling of a project. The NEC suite of documents, uh, as this is seen as best practice. Uh, and also the principles of uh, digital engineering and BIM. Um, 
uh, as they are emerging areas that uh, really should be addressed in the guide. So as part of the exploration phase, um, we also conducted some stakeholder consultation as well. Um, we contacted members of the, the task force, Austroads members, um, so, and also some uh, supply chain organisations. Uh, they were sent a number of questions to see their comments on part two, and also the uh, sections of part three that were being transferred across, just to see if there was anything else that we should do in the revision. Um, the topics of interest that we sought views on were uh, items like uh, current project delivery practices relevant to part two uh, in each of the jurisdictions across Australia and New Zealand, and the documentation they use. Uh, we also looked into how each jurisdiction uses part two um, and the application of these practices, uh, documents other than the guide that uh, are used by jurisdictions. Um, we also looked into the new and emerging methodologies and documents out there that could uh, uh, result in some sort of a, a, an upgrade or an update to the guide. The workshop um, that we held with the um, project uh, delivery task force was to discuss these topics of interest and and also um, the other members of the juris of jurisdictions, the supply chain organisations we talked to with University of Queensland, Australasian Procurement and Construction Council, and we also approached a number of designers, consultants and contractors that uh, are involved in project delivery. So the findings of this stakeholder consultation confirm the scope and the expected direction for the project, which um, as you'd all understand, it's always great to get that confirmation early on and make sure we're on the right track. Um, the project delivery task force acknowledged the principles and advantages of link construction, the NEC documents, and also um, be more digital engineering. It was recommended that information on these topics should be explored further in the literature review uh, or best practice review with a view that these should be included in the relevant sections of the guide. Uh, this is also uh, verified by the consultation with those, those supply chain stakeholders. Um, so again, that's, that's great that they um, were also on the same page. So from that literature review, the three um, areas identified um, that we explored in further detail, uh, I'll cover those now um, and just touch on each of those over the next few slides. So the first one I'll, I'll go through is uh, lean construction. Now, there's a number of you know, different definitions for lean construction. Um, but my, uh, I guess, very quick synopsis of it is that it's a, a method or approach of managing projects which is aimed at reducing costs, material, wastes, uh, time, effort, and so on. So nothing particularly groundbreaking, but, but uh, certainly um, well and truly worthwhile for project delivery. Uh, the implementation of Link Construction Australia uh, has gained traction over the last few years uh, and there's more and more organisations coming on board as they realise the benefits of applying that to construction. Uh, now, um, this sort of lean construction or lean uh, thinking uh, with projects uh, is um, uh, based on the, um, the process that was popularised by uh, Toyota and in particular Giono uh, after World War II. His concept was pretty simple. It was all about maximising value for the client while at the same time minimising waste. So certainly something that we're all, all trying to achieve with our projects. Now, one of the difficulties with applying this lean methodology to construction is that unlike manufacturing, construction 
you know, doesn't always take place in a controlled environment. Um, there's lots of variables and variations, and so it's not a predictable space, and you don't necessarily have reliable workflows. So it was found that lean construction or lean thinking of lean management is certainly relevant to part two of the guide, uh, as it offers uh, highly efficient alternative delivery methods and staging of activities, offering significant time, materials, and cost benefits. Um, although the term is often referred to as lean construction, the techniques are actually more effective at that planning, design, and procurement stages of a project. Um, and that way they're able to be fully recognized when they're implemented at those early stages. Um, the methodology can also be beneficial to effectively accelerate your project delivery as well. Now there's a number of different tools and methods and systems out there that have been developed in uh, you know, an attempt to actually translate this lean thinking to road construction. Um, it's, it's not sort of a single method, um, uh, but there's uh, you know, a more results based or on uh, application of the relevant tools and, and those sort of things. So many of the tools can be used in, independently or jointly um, to impl implement the, the lean practice in our construction projects. So a really simple example of, of what can be done is, is say offsite manufacturing, where you're gonna perhaps precast some, some structures so by doing simple things like that where possible, you can have higher safety standards, more efficiencies and high quality offsite. And if you do it in the right way, you can actually reduce on-site construction time. So that's just a real simple example, I guess, of it. Now the choice to use link construction approach may influence the decision-making process and the terms of your, your contract documents that you're gonna use. So really to implement uh, this, um, and all the specific tools and systems and so on, it, it actually requires uh, some trained practitioners um, and you need to do it very much in the early stages, such as your, your planning, design and procurement phases. There are many different systems, as I mentioned before, that follow this, these principles and you know, digital engineering is actually one of them, which I'll talk about in a sec. Um, agencies, however, um, you have all your own methodologies and approaches and, and how you go about delivery, so therefore, um, link construction is a, perhaps a consideration uh, to explore in amongst um, what you've already used at your jurisdiction, but also uh, in consideration with um, experienced practitioners. So now onto digital engineering and, and BIM. Um, like link construction, there's many um, different definitions um, and uh, um, yeah, it's, it's perceived differently by, by a number of different people. So. Um, our basic synopsis in this sort of context is that it's uh, digital engineering or, or BIM uh, um, is a resource tool used for, for planning through the delivery stage and, and even into the latter stages of a, an asset's life. And it's uh, you know often supported by a common data environment. So in that initial planning uh, phase, uh, BIM is actually really effective in providing that sort of consistent structured file management system uh, and it can help influence the internal workflow processes. Uh, information and data um, at the, the current and consolidated, uh, are um, current and consolidated, so it creates efficiencies in terms of improving the quality, currency, uh, consistency of information during pr uh, procurement, all the way through to the delivery of the project and, and beyond, as I mentioned before. So the BIM system is a shared knowledge resource for information and it can be used for decision-making 
um, and making sure that it's all based on the same information when you're going through those decision-making processes. And it's really based on a, a, um, a data-rich, and it can often be a data-rich virtual model of the infrastructure. Um, that, that's another way people perceive um, BIM and digital engineering. So um, a jurisdiction can choose to use BIM uh, throughout, uh, oh, well, um, BIM procurement documents to maintain sort of consistency uh, with the templates uh, um, and modified uh, for any individual project. So there's a lot of guidance out there, um, as we noted down the bottom of the slide there, NatSpec 2016 and also ISO 19650.1. Um, you know, these documents are, are great, set out the requirements and include the concepts and principles needed to develop a BIM system um, in the contract documentation uh, during a, the life cycle of a built asset, including things like you know strategic uh, planning, procurement, design, uh, and so on. So the BIM process can also be used with other project planning models as well. So it's fairly fairly flexible, and it can deliver improve business outcomes uh, to asset owners, operators, uh, project clients and supply chains. So the use of BIM has been increasing internationally. Uh, agencies certainly in Australia and New Zealand um, have been picking up, but they also have their own methodology and approach to how they deliver projects and how they require um, tenders to outline their processes, standards, KPIs and, and so on. So. It's something that you need to put in a significant amount of consideration early on because it's a lot of time and effort can be invested in in, uh, in this and you need to make sure that uh, your jurisdiction's on board. Now, finally, I'll just cover the uh, NEC suite of documents. Now, these documents, particularly NEC 4, are certainly relevant to part two of the guide as it guides the decision-making process and helps to focus on collaboration and relationships between the wider team and, and different sectors. Um, the NEC contracts um, are different from others um, in that they're designed to be used by engineers, uh, where traditionally the documents we use are often complicated and full of legal terminology. Uh, these uh, NEC contract suite is written in plain English uh, and it's founded on three key principles around clarity, flexibility and stimulating good management. Now, NEC promotes uh, practical collaboration, transparency, early warning, um, and appropriate allocation of risk, and offers a range of pricing models, including incentives for early completion and sharing of cost savings and so on. It also um, incorporates uh, lean management, management and construction methods. So 2019, Sydney Water became the first major uh, infrastructure company in Australia to adopt NEC 4 uh, to deliver some works. and. And others are, are looking to do the same. Main roads in Western Australia have also successfully trialled using NEC for a 16K stretch of the, the Great Northern Highway. Uh, jurisdictions, however, um, were found to use their own contract specification documents. So you're not necessarily just gonna pick up NEC4 and just start to uh, implement them. Um, but in the, in the guide, we've um, provided some suggestions um, and other publications as well that uh, you could consider. So the update of the guide does not seek to make a comparison between the different documents either. It's just providing some information there um, for you to uh, make your own judgment on uh, when you're starting a project. Uh, so really the expectation is that practitioners will undertake their own research based on the, the scale and the risk of the project. 
So I'll now hand over to Karen to cover um, the changes made. Thanks, Nigel. I'd like to take you through an overview of the areas that were changed during the update of part two. So in part two, we updated the third edition synopsis uh, to acknowledge that part two was revised to incorporate guidance on tendering and contract award provisions that were previously published in Austroad's Guide to Project Delivery Part Three, Contract Management. Part two also includes uh, new industry best practice and techniques as Nigel has just covered. A number of minor edits have also been made, including referring to part five of the guide to project delivery, which is um, road construction and quality assurance that was published in 2018. Part two previously referred to four parts in the project delivery suite. Um, all references and cross-references were checked for currency and updated where necessary. Minor editing was also undertaken to meet current standards of punctuation and English expression. So chapter one being the introduction chapter was modified to discuss emerging project management approaches that can be implemented to reduce costs, shorten construction times, increase productivity and manage projects efficiently and effectively. So lean construction and digital engineering combining BIM, building information modeling, were also added to provide a brief overview of the approach and methodology. Agencies, however, may have their own methodology and approach to the delivery of projects and may require all tenderers to outline the processes, standards and key performance indicators that the project team intends to implement in order to satisfactorily deliver the project. Role clarity was also modified to include the program manager amongst the definitions of project manager and senior manager. This inclusion had importance as the program manager's role oversees many projects that are dependent, but also interconnected that support strategic initiatives across the business or organisation. A program manager is responsible for communication and updates on milestones on various projects to ensure the program's objective is achieved. In addition, the governance section was slightly modified to expand on the makeup of senior management during times of project reviews and any delays or risks when communicated by the project manager. It is also important to include the program manager, project director or project sponsor on any potential issues including community risk, financial and time issues at the earliest possible time as this particular project may be a project within a program of works. The project director who coordinates multiple teams will have an oversight of any potential constraints and can then mitigate any issues to ensure smooth on-time project delivery. The project sponsor who has overall accountability for the project can also provide the resources and support to ensure the project is delivered with its original intent. So briefly, chapter four procurement strategy was moved to follow the quality and audit chapter. The reordering of this chapter was found to be better aligned to the framework of the overall document with the following chapters being contract and award respectively. Within the procurement strategy chapter, which is section 11.3, delivery models, content was updated to include the consideration of a cost reimbursable contract. So this contract is also referred to as a cost plus contract. This contract is where the contractor is reimbursed for the actual 
costs incurred in carried, carrying out the works with an agreed limit, plus an additional payment for a profit. The contractor may be incentivised to operate more efficiently. This type of contract may be used when the scope of work cannot be fully defined in the outset or the risks may be high, i.e. emergency works or immediate rectification works. Costs that the contractor is entitled to must be set out in the contract and may include plant hire charges, labour and material costs. Continuing on in the procurement strategy section, a review was undertaken on contractual relationships. It is envisaged that partnering is in the development of the relationships is between the parties in the contract and is usually undertaken outside the contract with mutual objectives established and monitored regularly. Partnering can be of great benefit in contracting and many agencies incorporate this approach into their contract arrangements. However, if a contractor starts losing money and claims start to flow, relationships can tend to sour and increasing effort is required to maintain good working relationships. So an alternative to partnering developed by some agencies is to incorporate a requirement for collaborative contracting into the contract. We have included additional information on this where collaborative contracting is seen as a proactive approach to the contract from all parties, often with a collective focus on project objectives and outcomes. So this approach moves away from traditional lump sum or fixed price models to enable greater coordination of the design and delivery activities. This allows practitioners to procure a more integrated holistic delivery solution from planning, design and project management to construction, maintenance and facilities management. A diverse range of contract specifications and conditions can be used for a variety of projects of low to high risk and small to major projects. It can also be used for the procurement of works, goods and services across road infrastructure sectors and can include public and private buildings and infrastructure, plant and equipment. Additional information was also provided around the procurement process and we have taken the opportunity to highlight the different forms of contracts that can be used to assist the practitioner with preparing clear written contract documentation and these are shown on the slide. However, as always, practitioners should always undertake their own research on the contracts to be used based on the scale and risk of the actual project. As Colin mentioned earlier, Chapter 3, Tendering and Chapter 4, Contract Award of the Guide to Project Delivery Part 3, Contract Management was also moved into Part 2. In the next two slides, we'll highlight the minor modifications made to these two chapters. So Section 12 in Part 2 is now Tendering and the sections shown on the slide indicate the areas of change. So we'll talk about a little bit about collusion and um, the, po the possibility of collusion between tenderers at any stage during the tendering process may occur. Agency policies may require tenderers to provide statements or a form of declaration which should not be altered with their tender submission, declaring that they have not colluded with and the new text is with any others that would provide an unfair market advantage in terms of the tender. Text was also added in the inviting tenders section to highlight that national standards are commonly used, standard forms of contracts in the infrastructure industry with the acknowledgement that the NEC contracts are internationally recognised 
and can be considered on a wide range of services within the border project team. The agency will need to make a firm commitment on the contract methodology and documentation that should be used on the project prior to tenders being called. The word inclusion, the, sorry, the inclusion of the word designers was added in section 12.6.1 to create a more sustainable contractor and designer market. Added text was also provided in section 12.7, receiving tenders, and that was to include additional submission formats, for example, electronic submission or physical submission, or if the tender is closing at a different location to where the project manager is situated, and that's referred to remote closing. We elaborated um, some and included some text on um, the tender assessment committee, which may consist of a project management leader, a pro for example, a project manager, a technical leader, a financial leader, commercial contracting leader, and other members as required. We also reviewed the inviting fresh tenders section, and a paragraph was added to clarify the situation where conflicting information that was not originally identified in the project stage that may have affected project costs and methodology may require fresh tenders to be submitted and may be requested in the form of an addendum or similar documentation. So content from part three was moved into section 13 of part two and minor additions were made. We'll just quickly go through those now. Um, and these include the letter of award acceptance, um, where a paragraph was included to avoid confusion between the letter of acceptance and the formal instrument of agreement, which is the formal contract. And by way of explanation, the letter of acceptance establishes a contractual relationship between the parties. However, the agency will, will require a formal instrument of agreement, the contract, to be signed and executed by both parties. The contract guidance is then covered in part three which is contract administration. Um, the media release section of the guide outlines that the successful tenderer may also be publicly announced on the jurisdiction's website to announce the contract award. The project completion and handover section was slightly amended, noting that the interest of the that in the interest of project cost, the project should be finalised at the earliest possible time after it has been completed and not allowed to gradually wind down. In that context, the project completion process should transition to the, to the correct team that is in charge of managing and maintaining assets and outputs. The project may have two stages of completion, and that is the practical completion and the defects liability stages. These milestones are recommended to be specified in the tender documentation. Text within the finalisation component was slightly expanded to clarify timing, noting closure of the project cost accounts, which may be done after the defects liability period, transfer of project documents to the operator, maintainer and or owner for future use, for example, as constructed drawings and project files, which these may be done at the practical completion stage. Text was also added to highlight that the certificate of practical completion and final certificate may be one to two years after handover. So moving into the last two slides, where I'll take you through the amendments to part three, contractor management.
So much like part two, the third edition synopsis was updated to acknowledge the chapters on tendering and contract award that they were um, moved to part two. And also minor edits were also made, including the reference to part five um, and, um, and five, five parts to the delivery suite. And as we mentioned previously, all references were checked for currency and updating when necessary and minor editing was made accordingly. So throughout the document, the reference to the drawings was replaced with the terminology to digital models, more to align with the digital engineering um, and BIM building information modeling that's increasingly being used, particularly on major projects. And as we are being more collaborative rather than cooperative during contracts and projects, the slight wording was changed and implemented. The inclusion of the word partnering was added to describe the initial meetings at the commencement of projects, and that's in section 3.7.2. Um, in section 3.10.2 discusses the duty of care of the contract administrator. The contract administrator, um, we felt, was better defined as being the superintendent. So moving on to um, section 3.3.8, partnering or startup workshop section. This was updated and refers to where partnering or collaborative contracting is to be implemented and that a startup project workshop will need to be arranged early in the contract period. It is ideal that these meetings appoint a neutral facilitator and in this context additional information was added to suggest representation of members of a partnering group including the principal, a consultant and contractor. Karen, thank you for that, and Nigel. Um, so that's the end of the formal presentation part of the webinar. Um, so I see a couple of questions here, which we'll share amongst the team. Um, and if any of you who have been listening have got questions, please just um, enter them um, as Katerina explained earlier on. So first one here, Denby, thank you for your question. It's about cost reimbursable. How can cost reimbursable encourage the contractor to work more efficiently? Surely it's the opposite. I think most of us, if we've been on a construction site, will have done work under day works, and I guess cost reimbursable is probably um, nothing different to day works. My own personal experience on one contract with cost reimbursable was not a good one, uh, and it was very, very difficult for us as the client and our contract administrators to control costs. Um, I think there's a difference between efficiency and quality, which is worth noting. A contractor, and, and Denby's second part of the question is the percentage, the margin on top is usually a percentage of the work done. So, of course, that suggests the higher they can get the cost of the work done, the higher the margin. So, it, at face value, it does appear to be perverse. But remember that a contractor remains under this model responsible for the quality of what um, is built. And the trick in terms of quality and cost control is to exclude defect remediation from cost reimbursable. So if something is built um, defectively, then we do not pay for its remediation as cost reimbursable. That's a contractor cost. Um, I think it's better suited to smaller contracts. The one I'm talking about was 14 kilometers long, a couple of hundred people, probably 50 items of plant and very, very difficult with 50 or so work sites all over that length to keep control of costs. So it does have its place. It is, it has served many a client very well around the country, 
I think it does rely on having a good um, collaborative relationship with between the client and the consultant and the contractor. Um, I don't know, Nigel, Karen, if you've got anything to add to that, if you've had any experience with cost reimbursable. No, I think you're pretty well spot on there with that, Colin. Um, I guess uh, my view on any of these different approaches is what you just got to um, got to assess it based on a case by case basis, which you're pretty much noting. You know, if it's the if it's the right project for the that, that sort of a, an approach or methodology, then it's going to work well. But if you try and do that for something that's too large or um, perhaps too complex, then it's it's not going to come come out with the right result. So, but no, I've not, nothing nothing really further to add. Thanks, thanks, Colin. Thanks, Nigel. Right, another question here. It's about. Um, it refers to slide 20. To what extent do the amendments for parts two and three correspond or relate to um, Ostrode's Guide to Digital Engineering, which is expected out later this year? So I do know there's been another task force working on um, digital engineering. I'm not involved. I don't know how far it's got. We certainly do attempt not to duplicate and overlap between guides. Um, I suspect that Karen and Nigel probably don't have a lot of um, knowledge of what that guide on digital engineering will include. Uh, it might be that once that is published later in the year, we have to review what we've put in these guideline documents because uh, we certainly don't want to put out conflicting information or overlapping information. Any comment, either of you, on that? No, it's, as you mentioned, we're, we're not privy to all of that, unfortunately. Okay. Um, contract administrator, Karen, you were talking about that. Um, is it best to describe the superintend superintendent's rep or superintendent as, as specified current practice in DOT Victoria? I'll just read that again. Is it best to describe superintendent's rep or superintendent as specified current practice in DOT Victoria? Um, I don't know if uh, we, Karen, you and I did talk about this a little bit. Uh, you know, was the contract administrator a person, i.e. the superintendent, or was the whole team administering the contract? But have you got any um, comment there on how to describe the contract administrator? No, or the superintendent or its representative. So I think it needs to be defined um, at, in its initial um, in in the in the actual contracts stage, um, and if it's defined to a particular group or or individual um, in that context. So, like we said, I suppose all jurisdictions operate a little bit differently, um, and that's where this this broad approach was was taken. However, I suppose it needs to be clearly defined in that in that tender process or in that in that contract um, stage where it's being written for that clarification. Yep, and I, I certainly remember a discussion you and I had where in New Zealand practice we call the superintendent the engineer to contract here, but the engineer's representative or the superintendent's representative under our general conditions has a whole lot of delegated power and authority and responsibility. So when we talk about contract administrators, we're talking about the whole team administering the contract, not an individual. But you're right, um, in Australia, there's lots of examples of each state having its own jurisdictional um, requirements and documents. Um, 
I've got one more question here. It's about part five. Why was part five, I think Karen said it was published first in 2018, something like that. So it's only been out there four years. Why was that published so long of, after parts one to four? I can probably have a go at that. Um, I was on this task force back in 2007 when we developed the four part, four part guide. Uh, I think it's, it's a, the result, part five has come much later as the result of a lot of discussions we've had at the task force meetings about ongoing problems with the quality of delivered asset. Um, and that has two components to it. It's the, it's the amount of rework that's required during construction and the defects period. But it's also about how often our maintenance forces have to intervene early. So it's all about problems we've got as clients, principals, owners, um, regarding the quality of the project that's handed over. Too much money is wasted in rework and too much money is wasted in early maintenance intervention. So we all agreed to have a look at further guidance on improving quality in construction, which resulted in part five. And I'm sure there's some of you on the on this webinar that are based in Victoria and Peter Belf was a real champion of this before he retired and he got it to work successfully on a number of big projects in Victoria. So uh, that really, I think you need you need champions to drive things like this forward and, and his enthusiasm resulted in part five with other input. And interestingly, uh, the way it was done in Victoria was to get the supply chain on board before uh, it was done. So don't spring it upon them as another client um, dictate on controlling quality, but sell it to them as an opportunity to minimize their rework costs. So that's, that's, that's the history of it from my point of view. I suspect that Nigel and Karen were not involved in parts one to four originally, so probably nothing to add. Um, I've got one other one here and it's probably to either Nigel or Karen and it's about the question is if we were wishing to adopt lean construction or BIM or NEC principles how would we go about this any guidance to practitioners who want to pick these new concepts that we're talking about here up how would you go forward on them yeah, I'm happy to take that one, Colin. So um, I guess all the jurisdictions have your, your own documentation and so on that you that you follow. So you're not necessarily going to be just completely departing from that, but you certainly do have opportunities in contract specifics and so on that you you can introduce some some of these different areas now to have a look at the, these um, these individually. Digital engineering and BIM, if you're really keen on that, and I think it's a, a fantastic uh, approach and can have long lasting effects, it really needs to be a, a jurisdiction wide decision though. Um, you can't go doing that individually because it requires, well, really just read the benefits of it. You, you, you'll need to um, support it for, for many years to come because uh, it not only in the project delivery aspect, but where it can really come into its own is uh, is in the future. If you've got some great digital um, representations of the assets and so on, that can be fantastic for maintenance and and any future operation of the those assets. So that really is a jurisdiction uh, wide uh, decision. Uh, the other two though, um, into lean construction and NEC, 
um, yeah, you, could, you certainly have the opportunity to potentially adopt those in, in part. Again, you're not going to go completely away from the, the documents that your jurisdiction uses, but you can perhaps introduce a, a few of the aspects uh, in those contract specifics uh, and, and then hopefully um, get the, the outcomes from, from that. So certainly you, you need some support from your, your leadership on, on that, but I, I think if you can prove the benefits, uh, there'll be a lot of support for Certainly, the the lean construction side of things and 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 uh, going green is is a hot topic across the across the world. So, if there's any way that we can uh, reduce waste and and increase it, increase efficiency and so on, I'm sure you'll you'll get uh, um, positive reception to that. But uh, but yeah, I, I guess to to summarise, BIM's a big step and really needs to be a jurisdictional uh, wide decision. But the other two, you can perhaps do more of a, a localised thing and and reap the benefits. Um, just in your in your contract specifics. So anyway, with Colin, Karen, don't know if you have any extra thoughts on on top of that. Uh, yep, yeah, a comment from me, Nigel, um, and the audience out there. Uh, lean construction. I don't personally have a whole lot of um, experience with. One of our tier one contractors in New Zealand is passionate about it. Uses it on just about every contract um, and finds it pays dividends. But for anyone trying to get into a thing like lean construction, I think you need someone to go to. So there is, an, there is a consultant sitting up in Auckland who markets actively lean construction techniques. I think Karen said in her presentation, you need a specialist to administer it. So they will sell all the tools. They will come in and train the team on how to get up and running with it. And they're there to support the team until they are able to um, do it themselves. So. It's you, all these new things, you, you you know, you can't easily pick them up by reading what they are um, on the internet. You really need someone with hands-on experience that can work with you and promote them. That's correct. And there are organisations that do conduct um, live sessions as well and um, probably some monthly webinars. So yeah, if you're really interested in, in understanding that a little bit further, it's probably um, beneficial just to to jump onto those sessions just to get a bit, bit more of an appreciation and understanding of, of the level of um, complexity or, or context of, of, of your particular project and how it applies um, in that respect. Thanks, Karen. Um, Peter, thank you for your question on rise and fall here. Um, the question is uh, to the panel, have we got any guidance on the rise and fall part of a lump sum contract um, where, no, where the contract doesn't permit or, or talk about rise and fall, it doesn't treat it separately? And the point Peter's making is that at the moment there are significant price increases happening globally in material supply post-COVID and of course um, the, the current unsettled situation in Eastern Europe um, will contribute as well. So it's shipping delays, it's difficulty of getting materials. We certainly are seeing it in New Zealand, um, out of control steel prices, for example. So, uh, you know, a superintendent administering the contract, if the client's contract doesn't allow um, for rise and fall to be paid, then that unfortunately is the contract that the contractor tendered on. We have, under our general conditions, as a client, seen the need to develops different special conditions and we are taking the risk of unprecedented cost increases 
So we carry that as a risk. I think the, the difficulty in my mind, Peter, is if you tender a lump sum contract and you make the tenderers take on that risk for um, rampant cost increases that they cannot control or predict, you're just going to get a huge risk premium in the tender in all the tender prices. So we as a client um, accept and hold that risk. So that's how we're managing it. Um, Karen, Nigel, anything to add? No, I think you've covered it pretty well. Yeah, Thanks, Colin. Yeah, it's fine. Yep. So that is all the questions that we have got there. Um, interesting questions to those of you that have asked them. Thank you. If there's anyone else, we have about seven minutes. If there's anyone else that has a final question, click it up. I'll wait about 30 seconds and see if anything else pops up. Katarina, it looks as though it's back to you then. Well, looks like no more questions from uh, the audience, uh, but thanks for all of your submitted questions and thanks so much, Colin, for moderating the Q&A and uh, Nigel and Karen, thanks for your um, fantastic presentations. Oh, yes, there There's is one, one more question. There. Shall, shall I ask, let's just do that one, Katarina, this will be the last question. Um, from Philip, um, are the large contractors promoting the use of NEC? I'll leave Nigel and Karen to talk about Australia. Over here in New Zealand, uh, yes, I must say, and it's not just large contractors, there are a number of contractors here who have worked under NEC for local authority contracts and approach us and ask why as a national transport agency we don't adopt NEC or put contracts out under NEC. The real reason is that we were a signatory, we were on the committee that developed our national general conditions of contract um, and we are therefore loyal to them and we want to stay with them. So yes, every six or 12 months someone comes and um, tries to talk us into doing an NEC contract, but we have not done so thus far. Australian situation, you two, any idea? Yeah, fairly similar over here, Colin. So certainly in the road infrastructure part of the business, we're, we're you know, it's certainly in a in a pretty similar situation, and and do get uh, approaches here and there at varying levels. It doesn't necessarily have to be the the, the top tier, as you as you mentioned. Um, but certainly other parts of the industry, and I, I mentioned it before, how Sydney Water and uh, have been keen on using it, and there's been a few other um, Infrastructure organisations pretty keen as well. So there's other parts of the the industry that uh, are perhaps uh, are taking it more readily. Uh, but yeah, certainly with the road jurisdictions, uh, everyone is is at this stage committed to um, uh, what they've already got set up and, and utilising that. But from what I've I've seen, they certainly are tweaking and changing it to to um, uh, not necessarily adopt NEC, but but perhaps some of the some of the principles. So so yeah, it's it's a pretty similar experience over here. Thank you, Nigel. Katerina, over to you to wrap up. 
Thanks so much. Right. So as we're wrapping up, just a quick reminder to everybody that there will be a survey as you exit the session. Just please take a couple of minutes uh, to fill it in and send us your feedback. Um, it really helps us to know what you liked or didn't like about the session and what suggestions you have for future webinars. Um, and once again, today's session is being recorded and we will let you know when the recording is available on our website. So thanks again, everybody. Um, stay well and safe and enjoy the rest of your day. We'll see you next time.